This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The New Mother by Lucy Clifford. It's read for us by Heather Ordover, and we'll be talking about it afterwards. Anyhow Stories, Moral and Otherwise, by Lucy Clifford. This reading is taken from a digital copy of a book that is preserved for generations on library shelves before it was carefully scanned by Google as part of the project to make the world's books discoverable online. Anyhow Stories for Children by Mrs. W.K. Clifford London, Macmillan and Company, 1885 To My Dear Ones Preface These stories were not written for very little children, but for those of middling size, and for the big folk who are not above reading about little folk. L.C. The New Mother The children were always called Blue Eyes and the Turkey, and they came by their names in this manner. The elder one was like her dear father, who was far away at sea, and when the mother looked up she would often say, Child, you have taken the pattern of your father's eyes. For the father had the bluest of blue eyes, and so gradually his little girl came to be called after them. The younger one had once, while she was almost a baby, cried bitterly, because a turkey that lived near to the cottage and sometimes wandered into the forest suddenly vanished in the middle of the winter, and to console her she had been called by its name. Now the mother in blue eyes and the turkey and the baby all lived in a lonely cottage on the edge of the forest. The forest was so near that the garden at the back seemed to be part of it and the tall fir trees were so close that their big black arms stretched over their little thatched roof, and when the moon shone above them, their tangled shadows were all over the whitewashed walls. It was a long way to the village, nearly a mile and a half, and the mother had to work hard, and had not time to go often herself to see if there was a letter at the post office from the dear father, and so very often in the afternoon she used to send the two children. They were very proud of being able to go alone, and often ran half the way to the post office. When they came back, tired with the long walk, there would be the mother waiting and watching for them, and the tea would be ready, and the baby crowing with delight. And if by any chance there was a letter from the sea, then they were happy indeed. The cottage room was so cozy, the walls were as white as snow inside as well as out, and against them hung the cake tin and the baking dish and the lid of the large saucepan that had been worn out long before the children could remember, and the fish slice, all polished and shining as bright as silver. On one side of the fireplace, above the bellows, hung the almanac, and on the other, the clock that always struck the wrong hour and was always running down too soon. But... It was a good clock, with a little picture on its face, and sometimes ticked away for nearly a week without stopping. The baby's high chair stood in one corner, and in another there was a cupboard hung up high against the wall, in which the mother kept all manner of little surprises. 
The children often wondered how the things that came out of that cupboard had gotten into it, for they seldom saw them being put there. Dear children, the mother said one afternoon late in the autumn, it is very chilly for you to go to the village, but you must walk quickly, and who knows but what you may bring back a letter saying that dear father is already on his way to England. Then Blue Eyes and the turkey made haste, and were soon ready to go. Don't be long, the mother said as she always did before they started. Go the nearest way, and don't look at any strangers you meet, and be sure you do not talk with them. No, mother, they answered, and then she kissed them and called them dear good children, and they joyfully started on their way. The village was gayer than usual, for there had been a fair the day before, and the people who had made merry still hung about the street, as if reluctant to own that their holiday was over. I wish we had come yesterday, Blue Eyes said to the turkey, then we might have seen something. Look there, said the turkey, and she pointed to a stall covered with gingerbread. But the children had no money. At the end of the street, close to the blue lion where the coaches stopped, an old man sat on the ground, with his back resting against the wall of a house, and by him, with smart collars around their necks, were two dogs. Evidently, they were dancing dogs, the children thought, and longed to see them perform, but they seemed as tired as their master, and sat quite still beside him, looking as if they had not even a single wag left in their tails. Oh, I do wish we had been here yesterday, Blue Eyes said again as they went on to the grocer's, which was also the post office. The postmistress was very busy weighing out half pounds of coffee, and when she had time to attend to the children, she only just said, No letter for you today, and went on with what she was doing. Then Blue Eyes and the turkey turned away to go home. They went back slowly down the village street, past the man with the dogs again. One dog had roused himself and sat up rather crookedly, with his head a good deal on one side, looking very melancholy and rather ridiculous. But the children went towards the bridge and the fields that led to their forest. They had left the village and walked some way, and then, just before they reached the bridge, they noticed resting against a pile of stones by the wayside a strange dark figure. At first they thought it was someone asleep, and then they thought it was a poor woman ill and hungry, and then they saw... It was a strange, wild-looking girl who seemed very unhappy, and they felt sure there was something the matter. So they went and looked at her, and thought they would ask her if they could do anything to help her, for they were kind children and sorry indeed for anyone in distress. The girl seemed to be tall, and was about fifteen years old. She was dressed in very ragged clothes. Around her shoulders there was an old brown shawl, which was torn at the corner, and that hung down in the middle of her back. She wore no bonnet, and an old yellow handkerchief, which she had tied around her head, had fallen backwards and was huddled up around her neck. Her hair was coal-black and hung down uncombed and unfastened, just anyhow. It was not very long, but it was very shiny, and it seemed to match her bright black eyes and dark freckled skin. On her feet were coarse gray stockings and thick shabby boots, which she had evidently forgotten to lace up. She had something hidden away under her shawl, but the children did not know what it was. At first they thought it was a baby, but when, on seeing them coming towards her, she carefully put it under her and sat upon it, they thought they must be mistaken. She sat watching the children approach and did not move or stir till they were within a yard of her, and then she wiped her eyes, just as if she had been crying bitterly 
and looked up. The children stood still in front of her for a moment, staring at her and wondering what they ought to do. Are you crying? they asked shyly. To their surprise, she said in a most cheerful voice, Oh dear, no, quite the contrary. Are you? They thought it rather rude of her to reply this way, for anyone could see that they were not crying. They felt half in a mind to walk away. But the girl looked at them so hard with her big black eyes. They did not like to do so till they had said something else. Perhaps you have lost yourself? They said gently. But the girl answered promptly, Certainly not. Why, you've just found me. Besides, she added, I live in the village. The children were surprised at this, for they had never seen her before, and they thought they knew all the village folk by sight. We often go to the village, they said, thinking it might interest her. Indeed, she answered. That was all, and again they wondered what to do. Then the turkey who had an inquiring mind, put a good straightforward question. "'What are you sitting on?' she asked. "'On a pear drum,' the girl answered, still speaking in a most cheerful voice, at which the children wondered, for she looked quite cold and uncomfortable. "'What's a pear drum?' they asked. Oh, "'I'm surprised at your not knowing,' the girl answered. "'Most people in good society have one.' And then she pulled it out and showed it to them. It was a curious instrument, a good deal like a guitar in shape. It had three strings, but only two pegs by which to tune them. The third string was never tuned at all, and thus added to the singular effect produced by the village girl's music. And yet, oddly, the pear drum was not played by touching its strings, but by turning a little handle cunningly hidden to one side. But the strange thing about the pear drum was not the music it made, or the strings, or the handle, but a little square box attached to one side. The box had a little flat lid that appeared to open by a spring. That was all the children could make out at first. They were most anxious to see inside the box, or to know what it contained, but they thought it might look curious to say so. It really is the most beautiful thing, is a pear drum, the girl said, looking at it, and speaking in a voice that was almost affectionate. "'Where did you get it?' the children asked. "'I bought it,' the girl answered. "'Didn't it cost a great deal of money?' they asked. "'Yes,' answered the girl, slowly nodding her head. "'It cost a great deal of money. "'I am very rich,' she added. "'And this the children thought a really remarkable statement, "'for they had not supposed that rich people dressed in old clothes "'or went around without bonnets.' She might at least have done her hair, they thought, but they did not like to say so. You don't look rich, they said slowly and in as polite a voice as possible. Perhaps not, the girl answered cheerfully. At this the children gathered courage and ventured to remark, You look rather shabby. They did not like to say ragged. Indeed, said the girl in the voice of one who had heard a pleasant but surprising statement. A little shabbiness is very respectable, she added in a satisfied voice. I must really tell them this, she continued. And the children wondered what she meant. She opened the little box by the side of the pear drum and said, just as if she were speaking to someone who could hear her, 
they say I look rather shabby. It is quite lucky, isn't it? Why, you're speaking to no one. They said more surprised than ever. Oh, dear, yes, I'm speaking to them both. Both? They said, wondering. Yes, I have here a little man dressed as a peasant and wearing a wide slouch hat with a large feather, and a little woman to match dressed in a red petticoat and a white handkerchief pinned across her bosom. I put them on the lid of the box, and when I play, they dance most beautifully. And then the little man takes off his hat and waves it in the air, and the little woman holds up a petticoat a little bit on one side with one hand, and with the other she sends forward a kiss. Oh, let us see, do let us see, the children cried both at once. Then the village girl looked at them doubtfully. Let you see, she said slowly. Well, I am not sure that I can. Tell me, are you good? Yes, yes, they answered eagerly. We are very good. Well, then it's quite impossible, she answered, and resolutely closed the lid of the box. They stared at her in astonishment. But we are good, they cried, thinking she must have misunderstood them. We are very good. Mother always says we are. So you remarked before, the girl said, speaking in a tone of derision. Still, the children did not understand. Then can't you let us see the little man and woman? They asked. Oh, dear, no. The girl answered, I only show them to naughty children. To naughty children? They exclaimed, yes, to naughty children, she answered, and the worse the children, the better do the man and woman dance. She put the pear drum carefully under her ragged cloak and prepared to go on her way. I really could not have believed that you were good, she said reproachfully, as if they had accused themselves of some great crime. Well, good day. Oh, but do show us the little man and woman, they cried. Certainly not. Good day, she said again. Oh, but we will be naughty, they said in despair. Mm, I am afraid you couldn't, she answered, shaking her head. It requires a great deal of skill, especially to be naughty well. Good day, she said for the third time. Perhaps I shall see you in the village tomorrow. And swiftly she walked away while the children felt their eyes fill with tears and their hearts ache with disappointment. If we had only been naughty, they said, we should have seen them dance. We should have seen the little woman holding her red petticoat in her hand and the little man waving his hat. Oh, what shall we do to make her let us see them? Suppose, said the turkey, we try to be naughty today. Perhaps she would let us see them tomorrow. But, oh said Blue Eyes. I don't know how to be naughty. No one's ever taught me. The turkey thought about it for a few minutes in silence. I think I can be naughty if I try, she said. I'll try tonight. And then poor Blue Eyes burst into tears. Oh, don't be naughty without me, she cried. It would be so unkind of you. You know I want to see the little man and woman just as much as you do. You are very, very unkind. And she sobbed bitterly. And so, quarreling and crying, they reached their home. Now when their mother saw them, she was greatly astonished, and fearing they were hurt, ran to meet them. Oh, my dear children, oh, my dear, dear children, she said. 
What is the matter? But they did not dare tell their mother about the village girl and the little man and woman. So they answered, Nothing is the matter. Nothing at all is the matter. And they cried all the more. But why are you crying? She asked in surprise. Surely we may cry if we like, they sobbed. We are very fond of crying. Poor children, the mother said to herself. They are tired and perhaps they are hungry. After tea they will be better. And she went back to the cottage and made the fire blaze until its reflection danced about on the tin lids upon the wall. And she put the kettle on to boil and set the tea things on the table and opened the window to let in the sweet fresh air and made all things look bright. Then she went to the little cupboard, hung up high against the wall, and took out some bread and put it on the table and said in a loving voice, Dear little children, come and have your tea. It is all quite ready for you. And see, there is the baby waking up from her sleep. We will put her in the high chair, and she will crow at us while we eat. But the children made no answer to the dear mother. They only stood still by the window and said nothing. Come, children, the mother said again. Come, blue eyes, and come, my turkey. Here is nice sweet bread for tea. Then blue eyes and the turkey looked round, and when they saw the tall loaf baked crisp and brown, and the cups all in a row, and the jug of milk all waiting for them, they went to the table and sat down, and felt a little happier. And the mother did not put the baby in the high chair after all, but took it on her knee, and danced it up and down, and sang little snatches of songs to it, and laughed and looked content, and thought of the father far away at sea, and wondered what he would say to them all when he came home again. Then suddenly she looked up and saw that the turkey's eyes were full of tears. "'Turkey!' she exclaimed. "'My dear little turkey, what is the matter? "'Come to mother, my sweet. "'Come to your own mother.' And putting the baby down on the rug, she held out her arms, and the turkey, getting up from her chair, ran swiftly into them. "'Oh, mother!' she sobbed. "'Oh, dear mother, I do so want to be naughty.' "'My dear child!' the mother exclaimed. "'Yes, mother!' The child sobbed more and more bitterly. I do so want to be very, very naughty. And then Blue Eyes left her chair also, and rubbing her face against the mother's shoulder, cried sadly, And so do I, mother. Oh, I'd give anything to be very, very naughty. But my dear children, said the mother in astonishment, why do you want to be naughty? Because we do. Oh, what shall we do? They cried together. I should be very angry if you were naughty. But you could not be, for you love me, the mother answered. Why could we not be naughty because we love you, they asked. Because you would make me very unhappy, and if you loved me, you couldn't make me unhappy. Why couldn't we, they asked. Then the mother thought a while before she answered. And when she did so, they hardly understood, perhaps because she seemed to be speaking rather to herself than to them. Because if one loves well, she said gently, one's love is stronger than all bad feelings in one, and conquers them. And this is the test whether love be real or false. Unkindness and wickedness have no power over it. We don't know what you mean, they cried, and we do love you, but we want to be naughty. Then I should know that you did not love me. The mother said. And what should you do? Asked Blue Eyes. I, I cannot tell. 
I should try to make you better. But if you couldn't, if we were very, very naughty and wouldn't be good, what then? Then, said the mother sadly, and while she spoke her eyes filled with tears, and a sob almost choked her. Then, she said, I should have to go away and leave you, and to send home a new mother with glass eyes and a wooden tail. You couldn't, they cried. Yes, I could, she answered in a low voice, but it would make me very unhappy, and I will never do it unless you are very, very naughty, and I am obliged. We won't be naughty, they cried. We will be good. We should hate a new mother, and she shall never come here. And they clung to their own mother and kissed her fondly. But when they went to bed they sobbed bitterly, for they remembered the little man and woman, and longed more than ever to see them. But how could they bear to let their own mother go away, and a new one take her place? Part Two Good day, said the village girl when she saw Blue Eyes and the turkey approach. She was again sitting by the heap of stones, and under her shawl the pear drum was hidden. She looked just as if she had not moved since the day before. Good day, she said in the same cheerful voice in which she had spoken yesterday. The weather really is charming. Are the little man and woman there? The children asked, taking no notice of her remark. Yes, thank you for inquiring after them, the girl answered. They are both here and quite well. The little man is learning how to rattle the money in his pocket, and the little woman has heard a secret. She tells it when she dances. Oh, do let us see, they entreated. Quite impossible, I assure you, the girl answered promptly. You see, you are good. Oh, said Blue Eyes sadly, but Mother says if we are naughty she will go away and send home a new mother with glass eyes and a wooden tail. Indeed, said the girl, still speaking in the same unconcerned voice. That is what they all say. What do you mean? asked the turkey. They all threaten that kind of thing. Of course, there really are no mothers with glass eyes and wooden tails. They would be much too expensive to make. And the common sense of this remark with the children, especially the turkey, saw at once. But they merely said, half crying, We think you might let us see the little man and woman dance. The kind of thing you would think, remarked the village girl. But, but will you if we're naughty? they asked in despair. I fear you could not be naughty. That is, really, even if you tried, she said scornfully. Oh, but we will try. We will indeed, they cried, so do show them to us. Certainly not beforehand, answered the girl, getting up and preparing to walk away. But, but if we are very naughty tonight, will you let us see them tomorrow? Questions asked today are always best answered tomorrow the girl said, and turned around as if to walk on. Good day, she said blithely. I must really go and play a little to myself. Good day, she repeated. And then suddenly she began to sing. Oh, sweet and fair's the ladybird, and so's the bumblebee, but I myself has long preferred the gentle chimpanzee. I beg your pardon, she said, stopping and looking over her shoulder. It's very rude to sing without leave before company. I won't do it again. Oh, do go on, the children said. I'm going, she said, and walked away. No, we meant to go on singing, 
they explained, and do let us just hear you play. They entreated, remembering that as yet they had not heard a single sound from the pear drum. Quite impossible, she called out as she went along. You are good, as I remarked before. The pleasure of goodness centers in itself. The pleasures of naughtiness are many and varied. Good day, she shouted, for she was almost out of hearing. For a few minutes the children stood still looking after her, and then they broke down and cried. She might have let us see them, they sobbed. The turkey was the first to wipe away her tears. Let us go home and be very naughty, she said. Then perhaps she will let us see them tomorrow. But what shall we do? asked Blue Eyes, looking up. Then together, all the way home, they planned how to begin being naughty. And that afternoon the dear mother was sorely distressed, for instead of sitting at their tea as usual, with smiling happy faces, and then helping her to clear away and doing all she told them, they broke their mugs and threw their bread and butter on the floor. And when their mother told them to do one thing, they carefully went and did another. And as for helping her to put away, they left her to do it all by herself, and only stamped their feet with rage when she told them to go upstairs until they were good. We won't be good, they cried. We hate being good, and we always mean to be naughty. We like being naughty very much. Do you remember what I told you I should do if you were very, very naughty? Their mother asked sadly. Yes, we know, but it isn't true, they cried. There is no mother with a wooden tail and glass eyes, and if there were we should just stick pins into her and send her away. But there is none. Then the mother became really angry at last and sent them off to bed. But instead of crying and being sorry at her anger, they laughed for joy, and when they were in bed they sat up and sang merry songs at the top of their voices. The next morning, quite early, without asking leave from the mother, the children got up and ran off as fast as they could over the fields towards the bridge to look for the village girl. She was sitting as usual by the heap of stones with the pear drum under her shawl. Now please show us the little man and woman, they cried, and let us hear the pear drum. We were very naughty last night, but the girl kept the pear drum carefully hidden. We were very naughty, the children cried again. Indeed, she said in precisely the same tone in which she had spoken yesterday. But we were, they repeated, we were indeed. So you say, she answered, you were not half naughty enough. What, I, we were sent to bed. Just so, said the girl, putting the other corner of the shawl over her pear drum. If you had been really naughty, you wouldn't have gone. But you can't help it, you see. As I remarked before, it requires a great deal of skill to be naughty well. But we broke our mugs. We threw our bread and butter onto the floor. We did everything we could to be tiresome. Mere trifles, answered the village girl scornfully. Did you throw cold water on the fire? Did you break the clock? Did you pull all the tins down from the walls and throw them on the floor? No, exclaimed the children aghast. We did not do that. I thought not, the girl answered. So many people mistake a little noise and foolishness for real naughtiness. But, as I remarked before, it wants skill to do the thing properly. Well, good day. 
and before they could say another word, she had vanished. We'll be much worse, the children cried in despair. We'll go and do all the things she says. And they went home and did all these things. They threw water on the fire. They pulled down the baking dish and the cake tin, the fish slice and the lid of the saucepan that had never seen, and they banged them on the floor. They broke the clock and danced upon the butter. They turned everything upside down, and then they sat still and wondered if they were naughty enough. And when the mother saw all that they had done, she did not scold them as she had the day before or send them to bed, but she just broke down and cried. And then she looked at the children and said sadly, Unless you are good tomorrow, my poor blue eyes and turkey, I shall indeed have to go away and come back no more, and the new mother I told you of will come to you. They did not believe her, yet their hearts ached when they saw how unhappy she looked, and they thought within themselves that when they once had seen the little man and woman dance, they would be good to the dear mother forever afterwards, but they could not be good now, not till they had heard the sound of the pear drum, seen the little man and woman dance, and heard the secret told. Then they would be satisfied. The next morning, before the birds were stirring, before the sun had climbed high enough to look in at their bedroom window, or the flowers had wiped their eyes ready for the day, the children got up and crept out of the cottage and ran across the fields. They did not think the village girl would be up so very early, but their hearts had ached so much at the sight of their mother's sad face that they had not been able to sleep, and they longed to know if they had been naughty enough, and if they might just once hear the pear drum and see the little man and woman, and then go home to be good forever. To their surprise, they found the village girl sitting by the heap of stones, just as if it were her natural home. They ran fast when they saw her, and they noticed that the box containing the little man and woman was open. But she closed it quickly when she saw them, and they heard the clicking of the spring that kept it fast. "'We have been very naughty!' they cried. "'We have done all the things you told us. Now will you show us the little man and woman?' The girl looked at them curiously, then drew the yellow silk handkerchief she sometimes wore around her head out of her pocket, and began to smooth out the creases in it with her hands." "'You really seem quite excited,' she said in her usual voice. "'You should be calm. "'Calmness gathers in and hides things like a big cloak, "'or like my shawl does here, for instance.' "'She looked down at the ragged covering that hid the pear drum. "'We have done all the things you told us,' the children cried again, "'and we do so long to hear the secret.' "'But the girl only went on smoothing out her handkerchief.' "'I am so very particular about my dress,' she said. "'They could hardly listen to her in their excitement. "'But do tell if we may see the little man and woman,' they entreated again. "'We have been so very naughty, and Mother says she will go away today "'and send home a new mother if we are not good.' "'Indeed,' said the girl, beginning to be interesting and amused. "'The things that people say are most singular and amusing. "'There is an endless variety.' in language. But the children did not understand, only entreated once more to see the little man and woman. Well, let me see, said the girl at last, just as if she was relenting. When did your mother say she would go? But if she does go, what shall we do? 
they cried in despair. We don't want her to go. We love her very much. Oh, what shall we do if she goes? People go and people come. First they go and then they come. Perhaps she will go before she comes. She couldn't come before she goes. You'd better go back and be good, the girl added suddenly. You're really not clever enough to be anything else. And the little woman's secret is very important. She never tells it for make-believe naughtiness. But we did do all the things that you told us, the children cried despairingly. You didn't throw the looking-glass out of a window, or stand the baby on its head. No, we didn't do that, the children gasped. I thought not, the girl said triumphantly. Well, good day. I shall not be here tomorrow. Good day. Oh, but don't go away, they cried. We are so unhappy. Do let us see them just once. Well, I shall go past your cottage at eleven o'clock this morning, the girl said. Perhaps I shall play the pear drum as I go by. And will you show us the man and the woman? They asked. Quite impossible, unless you've really deserved it. Make-believe naughtiness is only spoilt goodness. Now, if you break the looking glass and do the things that are desired. Oh, we will, they cried. We will be very naughty till we hear you coming. It's a waste of time, I fear, the girl said politely. But of course, I should not like to interfere with you. You see, the little man and the woman, being used to the best society, are very particular. Good day, she said, just as she always said, and then quickly turned away. But she looked back and called out, Eleven o'clock, I shall be quite punctual. I am very particular about my engagements. Then again the children went home and were naughty, oh, so very naughty, that their dear mother's heart ached and her eyes filled with tears. And at last she went upstairs and slowly put on her best gown and her new sunbonnet and she dressed the baby all in its Sunday clothes and then she came down and stood before Blue Eyes and the turkey. And just as she did so, the turkey threw the looking-glass out of the window, and it fell with a loud crash upon the ground. Goodbye, my children, the mother said sadly, kissing them. Goodbye, my blue eyes. Goodbye, my turkey. The new mother will come home presently. Oh, my poor children. And then, weeping bitterly, the mother took the baby in her arms and turned to leave the house. But, mother, the children cried, we are... And then suddenly the broken clock struck half-past ten, and they knew that in half an hour the village girl would come by playing on the pear drum. But, mother, we will be good at half-past eleven. Come back at half-past eleven, they cried, and then we will be good, we will indeed. We must be naughty till eleven o'clock. But the mother only picked up the little bundle in which she had tied up a cotton apron and a pair of old shoes, and went slowly out of the door. It seemed as if the children were spellbound, and they could not follow her. They opened the window wide and called after her, Mother! Mother, oh dear mother, come back again. We will be good. We'll be good now. We'll be good forevermore if you come back. But the mother only looked around and shook her head, and they could see the tears falling down her cheeks. Come back, dear mother, cried Blue Eyes. But still the mother went on across the fields. Come back, come back, 
cried the turkey. But still the mother went on. Just by the corner of the field she stopped and turned and waved her handkerchief, all wet with tears, to the children at the window. She made the baby kiss its hand, and in a moment mother and baby had vanished from their sight. Then the children felt their hearts ache with sorrow, and they cried bitterly just as their mother had done, and yet they could not believe that she had gone. Surely she would come back, they thought. She would not leave them altogether. Oh, but oh, if she did. If she did. If she did. And then the broken clock struck eleven, and suddenly there was a sound, a quick clanging jangling sound with a strange discordant one at intervals, and they looked at each other while their hearts stood still, for they knew it was the pear drum. They rushed to the open window, and there they saw the village girl coming towards them from the fields, dancing along and playing as she did so, behind her, walking slowly, and yet ever keeping the same distance from her was the man with the dogs whom they had seen asleep by the blue lion on the day they first saw the girl with the pear drum. He was playing on a flute that had a strange shrill sound. They could hear it plainly above the jangling of the pear drum. After the man followed the two dogs slowly waltzing round and round on their hind legs. We have done all you told us, the children called when they had recovered from their astonishment. Come and see, and now show us the little man and woman. The girl did not cease her playing, or her dancing, but she called out in a voice that was half-speaking, half-singing, and seemed to keep time to the strange music of the pear drum. You did it all badly. You threw the water on the wrong side of the fire. The tin things were not quite in the middle of the room. The clock was not broken enough. You did not stand the baby on its head. Then the children still standing spellbound by the window, cried out entreating and wringing their hands. Oh, but we've done everything you told us, and Mother has gone away. Show us the little man and woman now, and let us hear the secret. As they said this, the girl was just in front of the cottage, but she did not stop playing. The sound of the strings seemed to go through their hearts. She did not stop dancing. She was already passing the cottage by. She did not stop singing, and all she said sounded like part of a terrible song. And still the man followed her, always at the same distance, playing shrilly on his flute. And still the two dogs waltzed round and round after him, their tails motionless, their legs straight, their collars clear and white and stiff. On they went, all of them together. Oh, stop, the children cried, and show us the little man and woman now but the girl sang out loud and clear while the string that was out of tune twanged above her voice. The little man and woman are far away. See, their box is empty. And then, for the first time, the children saw that the lid of the box was raised and hanging back and that no little man and woman were in it. I am going to my own land, the girl sang, to the land where I was born and she went on towards the long straight road that led to the city many, many miles away. But our mother is gone, the children cried. Our dear mother, will she ever be back? No, sang the girl. She'll never come back. She'll never come back. I saw her by the bridge. 
She took a boat upon the river. She's sailing to the sea. She will meet your father once again, and they will go sailing on, sailing on to the countries far away. And when they heard this, the children cried out, but could say no more, for their hearts seemed to be breaking. Then the girl, her voice getting fainter and fainter in the distance, called out once more to them, but for the dread that sharpened their ears, they would hardly have heard her. So far away was she, and so discordant was the music. Your new mother is coming. She's already on her way, but she only walks slowly, for her tail is rather long, and her spectacles are left behind. But she is coming. She is coming. 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 The last word died away. It was the last one they ever heard of the village girl utter. On she went, dancing on, and on followed the man. They could see that he was still playing, but they could no longer hear the sound of his flute. And on went the dogs, round and round and round. On they all went, farther and farther away, till they were separate things no more, till they were just a confused mass of faded color, till they were a dark, misty object that nothing could define, till they had vanished altogether, altogether and forever. Then the children turned and looked at each other and at the little cottage home that only a week before had been so bright and happy, so cozy and so spotless. The fire was out and the water was still among the cinders, the baking dish and cake tin and fish slice and saucepan lid, which their dear mother used to spend so much time in rubbing, were all pulled down from the nails on which they had hung for so long and were lying on the floor. And there was the clock all broken and spoiled. The little picture upon its face could be seen no more, and though it sometimes struck a stray hour, it was with the tone of a clock whose hours are numbered. And there was the baby's high chair, but no little baby to sit in it. There was the cupboard on the wall, and never a sweet loaf on its shelf. And there were the broken mugs, and the bits of bread tossed about, and the greasy boards which the mother had knelt down to scrub until they were white as snow. In the midst of all stood the children, looking at the wreck they had made, their hearts aching, their eyes blinded with tears, and their poor little hands clasped together in misery. Oh, what shall we do? cried Blue Eyes. I wish we had never seen the village girl in the nasty, nasty pear drum. Surely mother will come back, sobbed the turkey. I am sure we shall die if she doesn't come back. I don't know what we shall do if the new mother comes, cried Blue Eyes. I shall never, never like any other mother. I don't know what she will do if that dreadful mother comes. We won't let her in, said the turkey. But perhaps she'll walk in, sobbed Blue Eyes. Then Turkey stopped crying for a minute to think what should be done. We will bolt the door, she said, and shut the window, and we won't take any notice when she knocks. So they bolted the door, and they shut the window and fastened it. And then, in spite of all they had said, they felt naughty again and longed after to see the little man and woman they had never seen, far more than after the mother who had loved them all their lives. But then they did not really believe that their own mother would not come back, or that any new mother would be taking her place. When it was dinner time, they were very hungry, but they could only find some stale bread, and they had to be content with it. Oh, I wish we had the little woman's secret, cried the turkey. I wouldn't have cared then. 
All through the afternoon they sat, watching and listening for fear of the new mother. But they saw and heard nothing of her, and gradually they became less and less afraid lest she should come. Then they thought that perhaps when it was dark, their own dear mother would come home, and perhaps if they asked her to forgive them, she would. And then Blue Eyes thought that if their mother did come, she would be very cold. So they crept out at the back door and gathered in some wood, and at last, for the grate was wet, and it was a great deal of trouble to manage it, they made a fire. When they saw the bright fire burning and the little flames leaping and playing among the wood and the coal, they began to be happy again and to feel certain that their own mother would return, and the sight of the pleasant fire reminded them of all the times she had waited for them to come home from the post office, and how she had welcomed them and comforted them and given them nice warm tea and sweet bread and talked to them. Oh, how sorry they were that they had been naughty, and all for that nasty village girl. They did not care a bit about the little man and woman now, or want to hear the secret. They fetched a pail of water and washed the floor. They found some rags and rubbed the tins till they looked bright again, and putting a footstool on a chair, they got up on it, very carefully, and hung up the things in their places. And then they picked up the broken mugs and made the room as neat as they could, till it looked more and more as if the dear mother's hands had been busy about it. They felt more and more certain she would return, she and the dear little baby together. And they thought... They thought they would set the tea things for her, just as she had so often set them for her naughty children. They took down the tea tray and got out the cups and put the kettle on the fire to boil and made everything look as homelike as they could. There was no sweet loaf to put on the table, but perhaps the mother would bring something from the village, they thought. At last, when all was ready, and Blue Eyes and the turkey had washed their faces and their hands, and they sat and waited, for of course they did not believe what the village girl had said about their mother sailing away. Suddenly... While they were sitting by the fire, they heard a sound as of something heavy being dragged along the ground outside, and then there was a loud and terrible knocking at the door. The children felt their hearts stand still. They knew it could not be their own mother, for she would have turned the handle and tried to come in without any knocking at all. Oh, Turkey, whispered Blue Eyes, if it should be the new mother, what shall we do? We won't let her in whispered the turkey, for she was afraid to speak aloud. And again there came a long and loud and terrible knocking at the door. "'What shall we do? Oh, what shall we do?' cried the children in despair. "'Oh, go away!' they called out. "'Go away! We won't let you in! We will never be naughty any more! Go away! Go away!' But again there came a loud and a terrible knocking. "'She'll break the door if she knocks so hard!' cried Blue Eyes. "'Go and put your back to it,' whispered the turkey, "'and I'll peep out of the window "'and try to see if it really is the new mother.' "'So in fear and trembling, "'Blue Eyes put her back against the door, "'and the turkey went to the window, "'and pressing her face against one side of the frame, "'peeped out. "'She could just see a black satin poke bonnet "'with a frill around the edge "'and a long, bony arm "'carrying a black leather bag.' From beneath the bonnet there flashed a strange bright light, and Turkey's heart sank, and her cheeks turned pale, for she knew it was the flashing of two glass eyes. She crept up to Blue Eyes. It is, it is, it is, she whispered, her voice shaking with fear. It is the new mother. She has come and brought her luggage in a black leather bag that is hanging on her arm. 
Oh, what shall we do? wept Blue Eyes. And again there was a terrible knocking. Come and put your back against the door, Turkey, cried Blue Eyes. I am afraid it will break. So together they stood, with their two little backs against the door. There was a long pause. They thought, perhaps, the new mother had made up her mind that there was no one at home to let her in and would go away. But presently the two children heard through the thin wooden door the new mother move a little and then say to herself, I must break open the door with my tail. For one terrible moment all was still, but in it the children could almost hear her lift up her tail and then, with a fearful blow, the little painted door was cracked and splintered. With a shriek, the children darted from the spot and fled through the cottage and out the back door into the forest beyond. All night long they stayed in the darkness and the cold, and all the next day and the next, and all through the cold, dreary days and the long, dark nights that followed. They are still there, my children. All through the long weeks and months have they been there, with only green rushes for their pillows and only the brown dead leaves to cover them feeding on the wild strawberries in the summer, or on the nuts when they hang green, on the blackberries when they are no longer sour in the autumn, and in the winter on the little red berries that ripen in the snow. They wandered about among the tall firs or beneath the great trees beyond. Sometimes they stay to rest beside the little pool near the copse where the ferns grow thickest. And they long and long with a longing that is greater than words can say, to see their own dear mother again, just once again, to tell her that they'll be good forevermore, just once again. And still the new mother stays in the little cottage, but the windows are closed and the doors are shut, and no one knows what the inside looks like. Now and then when the darkness has fallen and the night is still, hand in hand, Blue Eyes and the turkey creep up near to the home in which they were once so happy, and with beating hearts they watch and listen. Sometimes a blinding flash comes through the window, and they know it is the light from the new mother's glass eye. Or they hear a strange muffled noise, and they know it is the sound of her wooden tail as she drags it along the floor. The end. Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Tamahome. Hi, I'm Julie from Forgotten Classics. And I'm Heather from Craftlet. Thank Hello. you for coming on board, guys and gals. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. I think this is the most number of females we've had on this podcast ever. It's overwhelming. Estrogen alert. <laughs> <laughs> I brought brownies. Yeah, <laughs> passing over. We've had Julie on before. Uh, we've had Jenny on before. Mm-hmm. We've probably had two or three other females on before. Yeah, Kristen. Cri- Kristen, right. But uh, I don't think we've ever had two females on before. I was on with Jenny one time. Were you? Okay. We were talking about that, oh, I don't know, Larry Niven book maybe or, yeah, The Moat in God's Eye. Sure. Okay. I think. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. This story is full of estrogen, I think. I, I really, I'm having trouble uh, understanding what's going on in it, but I, I find it absolutely fascinating. The New Mother by Lucy Clifford. One of the most horrific stories I've ever read. 
Yeah, it is kind of a horror story, isn't it? it kind of. your kids today. Completely. Yeah. Yeah. Here, because children, let me screw you up forever. It, in a way, yeah. It's the coral well, line of the 19th century. Oh, but but here's the thing to me is uh, because Jesse, you were talking about it. I was like, oh no, I hate this story. And I was, it's because there's not a scrap of hope. And as if that weren't bad enough, this woman wrote this story for her own children. And at yeah. first, I I was like, oh, maybe it was a little lark. Maybe they wrote each other horror stories to try to see who would outdo each other. No, as far as I can tell, she wrote it to teach them a lesson. And that lesson is awful. What is the lesson? If you're not good, you will be punished. You know, you know, if you're deliberately naughty, your own mother will go away and be replaced by a horrible mother. And there is no chance of redemption. You being sorry or realizing the error of your ways will not get you anything. Yeah, it, it is kind of a uh, you're going to burn in hell forever kind of story. Isn't yeah. It? Yeah. Yeah, you there's, a, there's a, a definite creepiness to it. Although, I'll tell you, I I did have, because I had to read it out loud, and it, I didn't want to do it at nighttime. I, <laughs> I, had, I had to put kind of a positive spin on it in my own psyche because... You know, you kind of have to inhabit it for a while. And I was reading about about Lucy Clifford, and I thought, well, maybe one of the one of the things that she thought she was doing was because she had excellent children. For them, it was more a see, we're good, and this will never happen to us. Mm. This is about those other children, the other children who misbehave, because they had kind of a fraught childhood. Their dad died when they were very young, and. Um, and from what I understand, she was kind of supporting the family herself. And so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm wondering if she wasn't kind of keeping her eye on two balls. One was what's going to sell because I have my husband left me with very little and we're screwed. And then on the, the other side of it, it was this is a way to actually pat my children on the head and say, you're so good, this will never happen to you. But she also says something at the very beginning of the book that these aren't children's stories. Yeah. Does she? She's, I didn't. Yeah. I couldn't find the book itself. I just saw that story. She's yeah, she says it's clear. for for children, uh, not for young children, but for older children. And uh, what I liked also, and for the the big people who mm-hmm. sometimes like little children's stories. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and I think you know, yeah. It, it, if you told this to you know a six or seven year old, I think God. you'd you'd they'd be screaming. Damaged. <laughs> Damaged. <laughs> okay, that yeah, that makes me feel better. Um, so maybe ten years, ten year olds. Yeah, even that this. back then wasn't it the early 1900s, late 1800s? Late 18. It's like 1855 or 1885. Yeah, well, I guess I think that I don't know. I'll tell you, I I, I had, but I, Julie, like you, I had the same reaction uh, to this that I had, thinking that this is a children's story that I had when my husband said, "Oh, you know, we could watch Coraline with our eight and eleven year old <laughs> boys," and I thought, "The heck, no." <laughs> No, uh, because I'm sorry. The mom in Coraline gives me the screaming heebie-jeebies. The, the new mother, you mean? The new mother, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then we can sew buttons afterwards. See, <laughs> and I have buttons. The kids I'll teach know you from to there. sew afterward. It's <laughs> That's very crafty. the worst thing. <laughs> you don't ha- here's the only thing you have to do: put these buttons on. O M G. That uh, so that presumably is like at the end of the story. We've got the kids. They, they never actually experience life with the new mother, right? 
They, right. they, they run off and live in the forest because they're so afraid, mm-hmm. the new mother. But, um, you know, I was thinking I was thinking it was maybe not as scary as, as Julie, you were saying, at least, mm-hmm. because uh, I, I think it, it was more like... Um, more like in the uh, okay, everybody read the father thing. Yes. yes. Yeah. Okay. So uh, apparently, what inspired Philip K. Dick to write that story was that uh, as a child, it seemed like he had two fathers. He said, right? There was mm. the, the kind father, the father who would tell him stories and who you know uh, would be kind to him, and then there was the other father, <laughs> um, the father who was stern and remote. And uh, he had a difficult relationship with. Hmm. And obviously, it's, it's not like there was two men, right? right. <laughs> Although in, in the story of um, the father thing, there certainly is. Um, in, this, in the story of his, of his own life, it was like there was two people. And when we hear the description of the new mother, right? The children say, we want to be naughty. And the, new, the old mother says, uh, well, if you did... If you, were persistently naughty, I would have to replace myself with a new mother who would have, you know, cold eyes, right? Stone eyes or, or right. glass, glass. glass. Yeah, glass eyes and a wooden tail. And I was thinking, well, I don't know what the wooden tail means, but I do know, <laughs> you know, if you're a, you know, stony-eyed, uh, glass-eyed person, you're not loving, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult to love children who are being naughty all the time. And, I mean, if you think of what they were being prompted to do in this story, I guess prompted is the word. Throw the baby uh, on its head, yes. Yeah, stand the baby on its head, break all the dishes, right? These are, these are children who are uh, absolutely being quote-unquote naughty, but also being naughty in a way that is potentially dangerous, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not like she says, I'm going to abandon you. She says, I would have to leave mm-hmm. and, and take the, the baby with me, right? Because mm-hmm. the baby needs protection. Right. And replace myself with someone else who would take care of you. Well, she made in the story, too, it was made to sound like this is one of those rules that I really don't have any control over. I don't want to yes. do it. But this is yeah. just how it works. This is what you would force me to do. I also thought it was important, very important, that the children were not naughty on their own. They had to be trained. They had to be coached. They were tempted. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's pretty significant because if if what you're really trying to do is show your children how not to be swayed by bad people, Mm -hmm. then this is a very effective way. <laughs> it's certainly don't, to don't to talk people. to strangers. I yeah. mean, that's what the mother even says, and I'm not sure that that's the perfect uh, lesson to be teaching children <laughs> all the time. Well, but it, what it I thought was, they, go ahead. It kind of bothered me that they would send out the kids by themselves in the first place. Oh well, that I, I that think was common. I think I yeah. think that that's that should be more common. It's it's not yes. most danger Agreed. is at home, not not totally. from strangers, um, especially in you know our. Well, <laughs> I mean, you, you might not notice that from watching the news, but oh yes, yeah, yes. yeah. We agreed. Need, we need kids to be more independent and not afraid of everybody. But um, yeah, this story certainly doesn't encourage that. Uh, it it is more of the scare the parents straight, scare the kids straight, mm-hmm. lest they become horrible creatures. I mean, uh, the the students that I've given this story to to read, they 
all question the motivation of the children and say, why do they care so much about what's in that box? Why do they want to see the little man and woman? And oh, it's it's a, so it's a there's no internet perfect. back then. <laughs> I don't know. Right, and they <laughs> no were so game. sorry they missed the carnival or the fair at the Not village. Sure. They didn't even get to see the dancing dogs and, um, yeah. And I thought the temptation was really really important, as you say, Heather, and also the fact that it's held out to the umpth degree, do the worst, worst, worst thing, even though you don't want to. And now I'm not paying off because guess what? You didn't do it according to these weird little rules. And so I'm going to eat, you know, get out of it. And that's classic temptation stuff, but mm-hmm. even crueler because these children are so innocent. And so, yeah, in, in addition to the fact that there's like no hope for these kids at the end, it's ultimately the lesson of, don't give in to temptation. No matter how great it seems, it's not going to pay off. And if it does pay off, it's not going to be what you think. I, I, I mean, I, I think the most simple lesson is listen to your mother. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you know, yes. just listen to your mother. Um, and and I was thinking about, you know, wh- how when at the end, and it was very striking to me, the, maybe the second time through listening, um, that at the end when they're, they're waiting for the new mother to come, the old mother's left mm-hmm. and the girl's left, they're looking around the house and, you know, the cupboard is bare because magically it doesn't get refilled anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the, the food is broken on the floor. And they say, well, well hopefully our, new mo- our, our old mother will come back, we hope. So what do they do? They try and make the house look like it did when the old mother was there. Mm-hmm. Right? And I was thinking, this is... This is the cargo cult attitude or mindset, right? Where oh, people yeah. have left and they've they've left all their car all the cargo's not coming anymore. What have we done wrong? We have right. to make things exactly like it was before. And right. this is this is really I mean, the whole the whole attitude of the children is it's like we're the mother is God. The children are trying to be obedient to God, but when they aren't and God says, you know, you're screwed. I'm leaving. I'm out of here. You haven't worshipped me properly. The cupboards are no longer bare. You know, the cupboards are no longer magically refilled. And uh, and the replacement God. I mean, I've had this. Some students were saying, is the girl supposed to be the devil? And I was, I That's don't, I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, she's kind of tempting them into doing something. Mm-hmm. But she, every answer she gives is kind of like a. Is, is like so obvious a lie. I'm like, really? She, she says, oh, you think my show clothes are shabby? And they're, they're, of course they're shabby, right? But you look at them and she says, oh, they think my clothes are shabby. Isn't that hilarious? No. I thought she was, she was such an interesting character. She, I felt like um, pieces of Something Wicked This Way Comes. You know, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the kind of the harbingers are always, I think, far more interesting than people who actually show who are supposed to be the actual evil. It's right. always the warnings that creep me out. Mm-hmm. Once the thing is here, you can deal with it. You can run, you can fight, you can do something. But the girl, I found her absolutely fascinating because at first I thought, well, this has already been perpetrated on her. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I thought she was repeating some horrible, Stuck horrible in lesson. the curse or something. Yeah. You know, that her only way out is to suck other people into this position and give the new mother a new home so that she can get out and get on with her. But there's nothing either. like There's no she's, hint to that. 
remember, there's the, also the man with the mm-hmm, dog. With the dogs. Right? And, and at first, we don't think they're connected. But at the end, uh, you know, he's following her out of town and the dogs are dancing in their hind legs. Sadly. Oh, yeah. Sad little dogs. Well, and the thing is, is that, and maybe that's kind of, see, because you guys are, were doing the same thing I was. We're looking for those familiar patterns of, oh, this the means troops. this, this means yeah, that. Yeah, it's very hard. To and understand. none of these things really are connected. These, I mean, <laughs> they're obviously, they're connected to making the kids be bad and then the new mother comes. But there's not a reason. And mm-hmm. maybe that's, and I don't know if she thought it through that much, if she just went, well, this will be fun. Or if when she, if she was, because it seems to me it's, it's clearly teaching morality on several levels. It's, you don't have to know why it happens. Just sometimes evil things, you get tempted by evil things. Yeah, they look attractive, but they're mm-hmm. going to fool you. Mm-hmm. It, it, the, the whole collection is called Anyhow Stories, Moral and Otherwise. And it, I'm not, I think maybe this is an otherwise story. <laughs> well, the thing I thought interesting too, when I did anybody read any of the other stories in there? I no, didn't. I, I didn't. Okay, no. I was just curious. This is the one that that uh, I, I wouldn't even have known of this collection or this author without having uh, read somewhere that it was connected, and then I started reading the mm-hmm. Wikipedia entry uh, to to Coraline, and I, I'm just fascinated by where authors get. Uh, you know the their awesome stories from, mm-hmm. and often it's from other reading other stories, right? But what I found interesting is the two stories that you said. Well, these seem like similar themes or related. Obviously, yeah. Coraline, since it was the genesis of his thinking, and then mm-hmm. the father thing, because it's about a parent who's replaced. Uh, both of these stories have hope. They have the possibility for redemption or saving the situation somehow in the best way that you can. And I was thinking, so different in that way from uh, the new mother. And to me, I have to be grateful to you, because the thing that defines whether something's truly a true horror story, I mean, Mm -hmm. The Shining is a horror story, no doubt about it. But in the end, they've been saved. And it's Mm -hmm. that G.K. Chesterton quote that Gaiman put in the beginning of Coraline, Fairy tales are more than true, not because they tell us that dragons exist, but because they tell us that dragons can be beaten. Mm. And so I found it really interesting that the Philip K. Dick story actually had the children saving themselves because I was expecting it Uh to be more of a story like the one where the guy has been in the cellar and he comes out and everybody's changed and there's somebody hanging in the town. Oh, yeah, that's that hanging stranger. Yeah, because aliens have come down and taking everybody over but that's, some, that is a truly horrific story. well that's a hor- horrific story because it's one of those where it's like a nightmare he keeps trying to get away and trying to get away and trying to get away and finally and it perpetuates repeats, itself yeah. in the next town and he's the genesis for the next person to go through the horror exactly and so you feel like they can't win and this story surprised me because that wasn't the case at all they worked well, together, they resourcefully, you know, took care of the situation. And it was the bully who he worked with, which I thought was cool. And the black kids, so three kids, kids who normally wouldn't be together in that time period that the story was being written. What, what I liked about that story, in, I, other than, there's many other cool things in it as well, but it, it certainly has like a kind of a fantastic science fiction-y version of... Um, to Kill a Mockingbird is what I was thinking. Is mm-hmm. it's yeah. got sort of a To Kill a Mockingbird setting, uh, you know? Yeah. Like, 
I was thinking of Stand have, By Me. Oh, sure, yeah. I mean, that's certainly in the same. Because the kids, Spielberg, yeah. But yeah. you're right. The creamed corn and they, 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 they are working it out for themselves and figuring things out. But, you know, a BB gun against uh, an <laughs> alien. <laughs> Not the greatest thing. Yeah, but I love the practical knowledge of, well, this is what we use, you know, out on the farm or at our house to kill insects with. You know. That's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, it, it's it's very it's a I, I would not be at all surprised to find out that Philip K. Dick had uh, this story actually in mind, um, not so much because of the connections between the father thing uh, and the mother, uh, the new mother, exactly, but because I think he read it, and I, the reason I think he read it is early on in the new mother, there's a, a description, and it's page nine in the story, the second page of the pdf Mm -hmm. and it talks about inside the house right it's a beautiful cottage and there's saucepans on the wall and and then uh this description of the clock and uh one of my favorite philip k dick stories which we have talked about on this podcast before is uh um, beyond the door which is about uh a woman uh getting a cuckoo clock love that story yeah it's wonderful um bizarrely interesting and very horrible but wonderful yeah and it's insanely deep in such a short space and also it's a truly fantasy world in that the clock has a mind of its own and everybody assumes that that or at least one character assumes that that makes sense and if you look at the way the children relate to their own home and their world uh, it's almost like they see the world as a magical place that is uh, for us inexplicable uh, or very explicable it's either inexplicable or very explicable right why when it says the cupboards are always uh, being restocked magically well we know where <laughs> that's coming from the mom's doing the work right? right the kids aren't paying attention the mom's doing all the work making the bread for them making their tea while they're out getting the mail. It's <laughs> totally obvious. And when, when the cupboards aren't working anymore, we say, uh, well, that's because the mom's not doing the work, right? <laughs> yeah. Mom's like God providing manna. <laughs> if the, <laughs> if the, if the uh, mom's not there, well, no more manna, right? It's, it's clearly obvious to us. But if you look at the description of the clock, and I'll read it here, here to you, um, it sounds very much like uh, the clock in Beyond the Door. Here it is. On one side of the fireplace, above the bellows, hung the almanac, and the other, the clock, that always struck the wrong hour, and was always running down too soon. But it was a good clock, with a little picture on his face, and sometimes ticked away for nearly a week without stopping. And th- th- that's the only description at the beginning, but there is another one near the end, um, about how it's it's going to try and keep going, I think, <laughs> even though... You know the whole place, the house has been thrashed, and the the mother's gone. But it's gonna it's gonna keep trying, even though it's you know it's pretty tough in this in this atmosphere <laughs> to keep going. And how how is it a good clock if it if it 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 can sometimes <laughs> you know it can choose to keep going? It's trying hard because it looks it's great. Alive. You know, it's, it's a classic looking <laughs> clock. I just could see this clock. I've got a clock like that on my mantelpiece that we don't. It doesn't work anymore, but I love it. It's a great <laughs> clock. I like to look at it. Very Good stylish. Personality. Yeah. <laughs> they have a fence, right? <laughs> yeah. You gotta have two. 
one to be worked on, one to be uh, one to drive. Oh yeah, one for decoration. Yes, and, and one for function. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, I I loved uh, cuckoo clocks as a kid. My grandparents had one, and you know, make those good sounds at seemingly random hours. Right. You yeah. notice it sometimes, and you don't notice it others. But uh, they they don't, as far as I I'm aware, have a mind of their own, even if it seems that way. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and in this, the father thing, when you're saying it's like to kill a mockingbird, I was just looking through it, and I was like, yeah, because the descriptions that he gave, he, it's very descriptive story. Yeah, yeah. And you can describer. almost, yeah, you can almost smell the garage, and, you know, mm-hmm. you, when he eats the frozen peas and the creamed corn, I'm like, oh, I've had meals like that. Yes, you know, um, it. anybody of a certain age or even of a certain knowledge of that period of time you kind of just get carried right into it and of course it's i think it said he wrote it in 1952 that sounds about right yeah Yeah, so that's the height of americana so to speak like that of that sort that classic post-war yeah that prosperity and well and i thought it was also interesting because of course being 1952 this is the rise of the mccarthy era and and that's the other thing that was going through my mind is like oh this is a classic kind of twilight zone trope this is the same thing that you get the what is it the the monsters are due on maple street and the all of that that he he tapped he tapped into that same kind of almost primal fear that that was taking root at, yeah, it's it's time. not it's not society as much as you know it. Well, it is society in that story, but also it's 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 going right to the family, right? Mm-hmm. This is this is um, uh, also invasion of the body snatchers, right? And mm-hmm. Many other stories, mm-hmm. including that one we talked about earlier, the Hanging Stranger. It's uh, they're all kind of about a, a paranoia of invasion and and change, so that people aren't who they were, right? Right. They're yeah. no they're no longer responsible for their actions. They're all communist spies or well and i don't think you can really be i think i don't think you can hit anything harder than not being able to trust your own parents i I think it's why child Mm -hmm. abuse is such a such an evil evil travesty Mm -hmm. any 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 parent who perpetrates something like that on a child it's just i i cannot find space in my heart to forgive but that is that is the fear and there's and there's also this weird thing, and I was talking about this on on Craftlet. This weird thing about growing up when you when you all of a sudden recognize your your parents as adults mm-hmm. instead of parents as parents. I had I had a very specific moment when I was I was already a I don't know freshman or sophomore in high school, and a girlfriend of mine I finally found out had been uh, molested by her father, not by a stepfather, by her father for years, yeah. and it was appalling and I mean it was like restraining orders and if she was coming over to our house we couldn't have our our phone listed because if he found out you know it was all sorts of insanity and I watched my father's reaction to to me telling him about what was happening and um and it was one of those transitional moments of I know that my dad thinks that this is wrong I get that but it was a shift into an adult world of Oh, oh no! It's it's a much more adult reaction. It's you don't do that to my child. You don't do that to any child. It's you've you've crossed this unforgivable line, and it's not a story tale. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a story anymore. Mm-hmm. This is real. 
And yeah, it's not your father. It's a man. Who's it's a man. A, an a, right. adult man who's reacting to this. And you suddenly are like, oh, here's who he is outside of this, too. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that's huge. I mean, I think it's so important. And it's it's wonderful when you realize that you come down on an issue, an important issue on the same side. Well, yeah. You, well, you, because then <laughs> that's another way that you suddenly take one step into adulthood because you're like, I can trust this. Exactly. Here's who and he I, is really, I, and wow, I can really trust it even more. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. if he hadn't been that guy. Oh. See, yeah. that's where I think that's where you get the, the father thing, and that's where you get the, the new mother. It's if, if he hadn't been that guy, if I had brought that up, and he'd gone, oh, yeah, that sucks. Well, yeah, and you know what's kind of interesting is you're talking about that. That was your step into adulthood. Now, and I was just thinking, let's look at the transition of the kids in these stories, which are told in, you know, what, the turn of a century, long mm-hmm. ago, 1950. So that's about halfway through. Mm-hmm. And then the new century. And you've got the helpless little girls who can't do anything other than react once they've, you know, taken their own action and chosen the wrong thing, all they can do is, oh, no, we'll just have to live in the woods. The mm-hmm. adults are all powerful. Then you have the boys who, under the screen of everything going on, the parents still are all powerful, but they can get around that by banding together and working on fixing the problem because nobody will believe them. And then you have Coraline, whose parents are largely in the background and ineffectual, Mm-hmm. seen yep. in a different way by her from between the beginning and end of the story, but she's got to save them, you know? So it's a real difference in how the children are presented also as having, you know, more power. Now, granted, yeah. these aren't necessarily representative stories for an entire generation, but I just think that viewpoint is accepted everywhere along the way because that kind of is reflective of how children were viewed at those times. So... Uh- I, I like when the turkey and blue eyes, which those are the only named characters <laughs> in the whole mm-hmm. story, and they're not even their names, right? I, I thought it was a real turkey up. in the beginning. Because <laughs> I missed oh, that part. Well, it, she's, named after, uh, what, she's named after a turkey because uh, I, I thought that I thought she was there named was a turkey. father. No, it's blue eyes is. Blue eyes is named. Oh, says, got it. Okay. Uh, Listen to this. The younger one had once, while she was still almost a baby, cried bitterly because a turkey that lived near to the cottage and sometimes wandered into the forest suddenly vanished in the middle of the winter. (laughs) (laughs) And to console her, she had been called by its name. Um, Mommy. Uh, well, I was thinking thinking at first... Call it dinner. Yeah, that, that, you know, that... It's it's because it disappeared because it's... The cupboard was magically filled with turkey that day. (laughs) That's right. My people call it maize. (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I I think you know it's possible it just got eaten by a you know a coyote or something. But, but you know, that's the thing where I'm just like, and I'm sorry because I was just reading it, especially the first time, going seriously. This is the best you could come up with. <laughs> the lamest thing I've ever heard of for a dumb name for a kid. I'm like, you know, come on, put a little work into it, lady. But you know, she I, I felt she had spent all her creativity on the, the girl and the little people and the pear drum and the pear drum. Yeah. Is the, uh, the pear drum a real thing? Because I tried to Google it and I, I couldn't find it. I yeah, couldn't I find it either. The, no, there's a picture. Maybe it was a pear shaped drum, you know, no, shaped like a there is a picture. It's a guitar, right? It looks like a lute. Well, yeah, it's got three strings and only two of them are tunable. Oh, okay. Right. And there's like a crank. And, and there's a crank to play it, and so I think it's you know it's more like uh, a 
one of those hand crank uh, things that would. I, I thought that the, oh. the, the man and woman would be, like you know, like little mechanically moving oh, objects. Got it. I, them like they're alive. We need the Dictionary of American Regionalisms for the turn of the century. Well, Whatever uh, volume. Yeah. Huh? yeah. I have a book like that. But this is that real. one that's like the sixth volume has finally come out. They started working on it in the 40s, I think. Mm-hmm. Really hit their stride in the 70s, and they've just finally finished whatever through Z. It's mm-hmm. great. Oh, it's great. Um, I'll have to send you a link. or yeah. uh, Because they have a website where they'll have their word of the month. And um, I've seen a lot of articles in the last month or so because the last volume just came out. And some of these words, you're just like, these are great. So, wow! You guys want to hear something weird though? When I just googled paradrum <laughs> on another website, it popped right up. It popped right up as a PDF, and the first line on it is: "Once upon a time, there were two little girls. Their names were Blue Eyes and Turkey." <laughs> and it's somebody's. It's a one pager. Google yeah, has your number. That's they the horror master site, right? Yeah. Weird. Yeah. Those algorithms are great. I'm just saying. I love it. If you're logged Ooh. in. Google's watching you. Sometimes I like it, and sometimes, yes. Thank you. <laughs> Speaking of uh, things on the internet, um, there's one story uh, that came out this last week that, or one YouTube video, I should say, that came out this last week that I I was thinking about in connection with this story. You've probably seen it. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But um, there's a little girl. She's in the kitchen, and she's got a little plastic bowl. And she says, it's too heavy. I can't lift it. And the father says, you take it to the sink. And, you know, she can obviously lift it. But she's pretending not to be able to <laughs> lift it. You know, it's made of plastic. But yeah. It's, you know, normal size. And she's, she's, oh, it's too heavy. She tries and then she runs away. And the comments are really interesting because the people are saying, well, <laughs> uh, she's, you know, nobody assumes that she's telling the truth, right? <laughs> Looking at the picture, there's no way you could assume she's telling the truth. <laughs> but I'm not sure that she's lying either. I don't know if she... I mean, uh, certainly it is not heavy, and what she's doing is acting. Yeah. Uh, but she's three years old. Is she know I am deceiving my father into believing? Or are they playing a game? That's in which, what I would think. In mm-hmm. which she is being naughty, right? And in being naughty, this is... This is part of, you know, growing up where you, you sort of distance yourself from your parents uh, by exercising your power to, uh, you know, your built-in powers, which are deception and, and being um, uh, independent, you know. But really, somebody has to put those dishes away. And <laughs> it's a good idea to train kids to do that. Well, also, <laughs> not having seen it, but if you're three, there is that thing that you just said, or there's the thing of it's an established game, and the reason it's mm-hmm. funny is because you can tell the difference mm-hmm. between if it's naughty or good, and you're both kind of doing it with that knowledge of we're acting this out, and that's what makes it fun. Yes, yeah. I know. got busted. I think it, if you watch the video, it, it, she she's she is she well she she she's being acts naughty. like she's crying. Okay, right? well she that's acts but like I was, she's crying. The the father's like. He's not saying, "Oh, you're," uh, he, you know, for you. He says, "Oh, that does look really heavy." So he's lying to her too, right? Well, but that's part of that's know. part of the game. Yeah, yeah I'm just uh, sometimes you know, that's part of the game. 
in this story, we've got children who are being naughty, right? The mother says, don't be naughty, children. Um, if you're naughty, I'll have to go away. Uh, and we don't... Every, but see, naughty is not evil, right? It's, it's bad, but it's not evil. But for them, that's the only way they understand evil. If you're as innocent as these kids are, mm-hmm. that's evil. I mean, yeah. because look, they're, they're told to do progressively awful things. Dumping the baby on its head's pretty bad. Well, they're not exactly told to do it, though. They're saying, if you, if you want to see what's in this box and see the little man with his handkerchief. And she the, told him, you did, did you throw this out the window? Did you right. dump the yeah, baby yeah. on its head? Did you so, bring but, the mirror? Yeah. But, yeah. But, and so she is not telling them, go do this. She's saying, I don't think, you, you're, I don't think you're capable of being naughty. Right? She's sort of reverse psychologizing them, right? Uh, I think it's I think it's that kind of that that kind of uh, the 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 way that really really bad kids mm-hmm. can do things, or also a Tom Sawyer can do things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, of, well, you wouldn't want to see what's in my little pear drum thing yeah. because you know if you were going to do that, you'd have to do something horrible like stand your little sister on her head. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't take a dead rat on a string for whitewashing this fence. It's great. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> oh, please, please. Here's my dead rat. Well, all right. I'll do you a favor. <laughs> I think dead rat on a string needs to be the name of a new band. <laughs> I like that. They'd have to be very naughty in order to do that. <laughs> so, I somehow think that you get tricked when you go to the concert. There's not going to really be. <laughs> there won't be a concert at all. Yeah. No. You have to bring your own instrument. You have to be the <laughs> concert, <laughs> right? Your own pair drum. I, I think it's Ozzy Osbourne's band. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Or perhaps just their family life, from what I've heard. Right. No. Well, before we wrap up this, what do you make of the missing father? He's, he's at sea. He's always at sea. He's writing letters. It's classic. That's mm-hmm. classic. Well, Disney, but also fairy tale, right? Yeah. Well, and, and not just that, but going back to what I learned from a listener when we did Persuasion, it's also a sign of being uh, upwardly mobile middle class. Oh. Maybe. That that was oh, at work. Yeah. And that and not just at work, but at work on the sea, that in the turn of the the, from 17 to 1800, the rise of the number of men who were able to improve their station in life was dependent entirely upon their ability to get into the Navy. Oh, well, that could explain their very nice house. I enjoyed reading the description. <laughs> I read it several times. I would have liked to live there. It was well, it's cold. House. It's cold. It's a cold cottage with a thatched roof. I mean, it's it's quaint, but I think it might be quite hard to live in in the winter. I think you're not looking at it through the children's eyes enough. Yeah. Wow, that's because they had such a hardworking mother. You're not accepting. Yeah, I know. But see, you're putting your own gloss on that, which, of course, the mother did by the actual true mother, Lucy Clifford, by mm-hmm. writing the story. But um, but the kids, you know, when they look at it, that's why it's a great clock, even though it doesn't work. And the cupboards are always filled. It's that kind of fairy tale thing. You're not necessarily supposed to be looking at it and going, well, it's really the parents and it's really this and it's really that. You're just supposed to kind of go along and go, oh, what a wonderful life. Mm-hmm. Kind of like um, in, you know, this Philip K. Dick story. Mm-hmm. Oh, what a great place. They had a garage and the father does stuff in there. Who knows what it is? The mother's perfectly mother happy cooking peas. dinner. <laughs> frozen peas and cream corn. 
Yeah, mm, delicious steaming casserole mm. to a nicely set table. There, there's something good about the uh, the description that Philip K. Dick does of 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 that house and that yard is very real. Uh, you know, if yes. you yeah. look at the backyard, you've got you've got the, the bamboo. It, it, it feels like a huge backyard, but you know, it's like a little tract, you know, suburban tiny lot but it feels huge there's the there's the carport and the garage right there's the the bamboo growing in it and of course that's the things growing in with the bamboo and oh, and, and there's all the little things around and under yeah. a rock you know it's, the workbench the hammers and, and saws on the wooden wall absolutely and no fences i don't remember once Huh. Oh yeah. That it feels huge because it becomes everybody else's backyards. No, I think he's jumping over fences, but yeah, yeah. At least his neighbors have fences. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody, there's there's uh there's maybe chain link. The fences don't the fences right. don't hem the kids in, right? No, exactly. Yeah, and if they're those low chain link ones, um I lived in a house with those and that was great because kind of like you're saying, everybody else's backyard was yours. When you looked out there mm-hmm. was all this green up and down. Mm-hmm. So um I like that idea. That's going into my mental picture now. Uh-huh. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Very homey. Store that away. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, yeah, I mean, he's got the he, the TVs on when he's looking in through the window. And they're, you know, she's sewing a cotton T-shirt. She looks a little sad because they were fighting. But the guy's got his shoes are off. He's got his easy chair. He's reading the paper. The TV's on. The can of beer. <laughs> you're, Sounds you're, wonderful. You're failing to mention life. the fact that he's a monster. <laughs> <laughs> you, but you can't tell then. That's what his own father would have done. It says he sat like it had learned a lot, you know. So on the outside, of course. But I'm just saying it's that, you know, it's that, very it, it real feeling. I could see my own dad sitting there true. watching the TV, etc. So that's all. Because when it's when everybody leaves that he goes limp. And you can see the worms behind his eyes or whatever it is. Yeah. That's so creepy. It's super creepy. Yes, it is. I love that story. Yes, which if this is what uh, Philip K. Dick, when you were talking about him and the way he felt about his father, I was like, oh, well, we all know he had his own little problems with perception, right? So maybe his that came he came by it naturally. Uh, Apparently, his father was a veteran of World War One, I think, Mm, Um, and told him lots of horrible stories about. uh, People on gas masks and stuff during during yeah. that. So we have the uh, fiction world salute him, but we of the parental uh, world are appalled. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, poor guy. He's, he's managed to uh, get a few stories out of it, anyways. Thank goodness, really. But you talk about somebody who who kind of turns off and goes limp after after the people leave the room. I think that huh. kind of describes my vision of what would happen to somebody who went from kind of a pastoral life into the mechanized hell of World War One, uh, and then yeah. back again. Mm-hmm. I mean, geez, no wonder everybody was drinking. I'd, <laughs> I'd be tapped into an IV of whiskey just... And a few cigarettes. In. And a few. A Let's few, all calm down really a little. Jazz. Yeah. Because what else are you going to do? How do, yeah. you, how do you file that into your, your catalog of how life is supposed to be? I don't know... Well, and some people do it better than others. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, I know I have a friend who is older than me, some, but he would talk about he was one of those people during Vietnam who he had his 21st birthday, you know, in the pad, rice patties up to his oh. waist, holding his gun over his head. He was chastising his daughter who was complaining because it wasn't quite what she wanted. And he's like, listen. <laughs> 
And the thing is, is that he was one of the scouts who would go ahead of the army to see where everything was. So when they came on base, their their general would give special permission. You don't have to take these guys' guns away because they will never give them up. But yet he was a very normal, nice guy, all this kind of thing. And I'm sure he probably fought his personal demons a lot because who wouldn't? But he didn't. I don't ever feel like Buzz switched off, you know. Yeah. But I could see a lot of people having to. Yeah. So, you know, it's just. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's just a great story. And it's interesting, again, when I was reading that story, which I read after all the others because I was waiting for the library book to get here, um, it made me think of the father thing, or the new father, or whatever you call it, in Coraline. Yes. What was the, what was the, I don't remember the new father. Was well, he just like the old father? He looks just like the old father except for the button eyes at the beginning. But at the end, and I know you hate this, Jesse, but since I don't, if you haven't read Coraline, you better go read it. Because I'm going to say <laughs> horribly revealing things about the end. But <laughs> I did not use the S word, you notice. Um, but in the end, he's like a giant slug or maggot or a giant shapeless piece of dough that's in that one basement that the mother says, well, you better not go look. You might want to look in this basement. And the whole time you're like, Caroline, don't go. I, I probably shouldn't, but I better. And that's where the father is. Yeah, and they don't do that to you in the movie, which I think is okay. Im- important. Because I think visually, if you had done that to moviegoers, <laughs> <laughs> that would be the end of anybody watching your movie. Mm. They but would the all inter- vomit. Yeah, and the thing is, though, is that he's got that dual nature, too, is that he's Mm -hmm. got enough of, and I guess you can't say it's the actual father, but it's enough of decency, and she's sorry for him. She's, oh, Mm -hmm. the mother used you, too. You you had to do what she wanted, and he's lying there going, yes, and you better run away, and, Mm -hmm. you know, she'll get you, too. And the thing is, he's like, oh, you better go now, because I can feel her. She suddenly started paying attention again, and she's coming, and I can't stop her. And that's when he starts trying to get her. So that's, you know, it's like he took that kind of an image, which is gross for anybody. I mean, he didn't have to have uh-huh. gotten that story. But I was connecting it. I went, oh, it's the same kind of thing. The pupae is growing and the, uh, the um, state, bamboo yeah. being used by the controlling creature. Who I always thought of that m- new mother as being a giant spider. But uh-huh. uh, that's not necessarily what she was. But underneath the nice she had bony arms. <laughs> certainly like had an active legs. hand we know that I, I, I think there's uh, if if you're reading Neil Gaiman stuff it becomes more and more uh, clear the more you read other stuff you know especially older stuff that he is uh, he's mostly a fan of literature right it, yes. mm-hmm. he's, he's not inspired by the latest vampire movie no he is inspired by the classic stuff and um, it's, it's, you know, I'm combing through really old, uh, weird tales, magazines, and finding all sorts of things all the time. And it just, every once in a while, I'll be like, hey, this, that name sounds familiar. And it, it just happens over and over again. Um, but I think I just heard that, uh, read that, uh, the Graveyard Book, his, his other, I think that was the follow-up to Coraline, mm-hmm. is, um... Oh, I thought it was going, before it. Okay. Uh... No, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. you might be right. You might be right. 
um, is going. That's going to be a uh, movie as well. Seriously? Uh, I don't know if, yeah, yeah, that's what I just read. Okay. Um, and I, I don't know if that's the right medium for it, but it's certainly a. It's a really fantastic novel. I'm. Oh yeah. Not sure if it is a novel. It's 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 a, it's a really good story. Anyways. Well, it's novel length. It's a, yeah, it's well, it's like the Jungle Book, as, mm-hmm. as he said. It was a tribute. It's got a lot of stories that add up to a book. Absolutely, it's it's the it's, it's the really graveyard good. book. It's the Jungle Book. It's the same story as the Jungle Book, sorta. Same kind premise, of. anyways. Same premise. Boy raised by uh, people Wild not his things. parents, right? Yeah. Um, and the uh, the thing is, is as I looked, you know, through the story, I read the story, I, like I noticed a few things here and there, and I I obviously realized. You know, it was the Jungle Book early on, but I never did. You know, uh, do you remember the uh, the nanny who comes to replace? Have you Have you guys all read the Graveyard Book? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Okay. No, Tam, Tammy? you should read it. It's good. Um, oh, definitely. There's a character uh, whose name is Silas, um, and Whoa. when I read this story with my students, you know, who are about eleven or so, age eleven, um, they were not sure what Silas was. Mm-hmm. I said, oh, I, I know who Sil- I know what Silas is pretty <laughs> early on. Right? It was very early. Yeah. Pretty mm-hmm. early on. Um, but it's not revealed until quite late. Uh, you know, he's a vampire, right? And that's cool. Yeah. You just ruined it for Tamahoe. I, uh, Casey had he'll to figure it out. He'll figure it out. Oh, I'll never read it now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's not telling you the best part. So but Silas goes away. He goes away and uh, he sends a new mother um, to take care of uh, our main character, Bod, nobody. Isn't she um, like a governess or something? Yes, uh, she's. Her name is Madame Lupescu. Okay. Oh. Or not Madame. It's okay. Mrs. I haven't Lupescu. read it. Mrs. Lupescu. Long time. And so uh, Mrs. Lupescu also has a quality uh, that you know becomes fairly obvious. As you're reading through, but it takes a while for the kids to make the connections. Oh, this Name character alone is evocative yeah. for any adult, but yeah, exactly. But um, Lupescu, it sounds like you know, it's just sort of a Eastern European. Sounds like a sort of another vampire name, right? Mm-hmm. But turns out um, there's a famous short story called Mister Lupescu. Oh, and uh, I posted about it uh, about a month or so ago, and. And it's about a little boy who who uh, has an imaginary friend um, called Mr. Lupescu, and the father is very dismissive of Mm-mm. the concept of Mr. <laughs> Mr. Lupescu. But Mr. Lupescu is definitely real, and he's definitely not... Uh, he's more like a demon than anything else. But because, you know, uh, Neil Gaiman's reading has read that stuff he says well if there's a mr lupescu and that's the name of the story then there has to be a mrs right. lupescu and Absolutely. it's like just oh it, it adds that extra layer of richness even when you don't know it's there right that you haven't read right. the story you just know that name lupescu it sounds like it's got some history to it well this stuff, it does i was gonna say what i love about his stuff too is you know sometimes He's, you know, he'll take things and go, oh, the Jungle Book, hmm, I'll think about that. And then he comes up with his own mm-hmm. thing, which is completely new, but yet mm-hmm. you can see where it came from. And then, but he'll also put in all these things like any writer does, of whether 
unconsciously or consciously and it's probably a combination of all this other stuff like so jesse when you're going through you're like oh wait this thing or that thing and from weird tales is i see it here or there and then when they go back and look at it again and they go i know let's name her this or whatever where that comes from it's like those are the little nuggets of you know it's like a chocolate chip and a cookie or something it's that's what makes him good at what he does well, and that not, was not the good. joy. He is amazing. He's he, a master. He is he is a modern uh, fantasy master in 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 the way that you know the fantasy masters of old, you know Tolkien or mm-hmm. uh, Robert E. Howard. He is going to be like you know. There's no question in my mind that he's going to be thought of in the same kind of terms. And well, I think it goes. He's but still it goes alive. Back. It's amazing. It goes back writing. to Sandman because before Absolutely. I started teaching high school, I, um, I when I was still working at Disney, uh, the the writers on Aladdin took me to a book signing, and it was mm-hmm. Neil Gaiman, and I didn't know entirely who he was. I'd read the Sandman that had the um, Midsummer Night's Dream in it, mm-hmm. and that was the only Sandman that I'd read at that point. And this book signing was for Season of Mists. And I have the the hardback, and this is the one. I don't know if you're familiar with this, Julie. No, it's I the, I know of it. Okay, this is this is the one where Lucifer is fed up with running hell. He is sick of people coming in and whining to him and saying, "Oh, beat me, whip me, make me hurt. I've been such a bad person." And he's like, "You know what? Hell is what you make it. Shut up. I'm done with you, people. You're all driving me crazy." And he hands a knife to Dream. And Dream has to cut off Lucifer's wings. And Lucifer walks bloody-backed off into the distance. And Dream is left with the key to hell. And Mm. he has to figure out who deserves the key to hell to run this place. Because obviously, on the two pieces of real estate that matter, hell is Mm -hmm. really important. Mm -hmm. So, So, every culture's gods show up competing for the key to hell. Okay. Now, when, when you're teaching high school in Southern California with a lot of disaffected students who are bored and think everything is stupid. How perfect. And you hand a book like that to them. You know, you're just walking through the classroom and you know they're not paying any attention. You just slide it onto their desk and keep walking. Mm-hmm. I, I rescued more readers with that one volume. And it's not because, oh, it's a great story and there's the devil in it. It's because it's a great story that resonates on so many levels with so many cultures and so much history. And he knows his Bible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's not, you know, it's not just that he I knows about I wish I could do that. Grab, and grab a stack of those and just hand them out. I know. I, I, it's just so, you know, you, you get four or five students and... And it's that's like $150. Well, I know. Yeah. And hopefully you'll get them back. But oh my God, it's a it's uh, this is the this is really the teacher's conundrum, right? Is yes. The, the, the teachers know that a little bit of funding here or there can can really make a whole lot of difference. Yep. But you know, it's very difficult to get parents to understand that, especially. I'm not just saying any comics, but great comics like great Neil Neil Gaiman. There's there's nothing better for a reader because yeah. it's I mean if you if you look at um, the story we did last uh, recording was uh, Red Nails and the adaptation of that for comics uh, mm-hmm. Robert E Howard story it has the most amazing vocab but mm-hmm. it's all on the page right so mm-hmm. you see a woman on a horse and it says she reined in her steed well you just learned a new word yeah yeah steed means horse and it's it's like having a dictionary where you don't have to look things up. It's right there. 
That was my biggest problem with. Di- Can I tell a story about Jeffrey yeah, Katzenberg? Sure. <laughs> We'd love to hear it. Come on. I don't think this was covered. I don't think stupid was covered in my non-disclosure agreement. <laughs> I, okay. Surely it wasn't. So the writers, the writers and the story people on Aladdin, geniuses, bloody geniuses. When we walked on, the script was nothing like what what you wind up seeing in the movie Aladdin. And there is a scene where Jafar said in the initial script, he's met Prince Ali and he says to the Sultan, I don't trust him, sire. He seems duplicitous. And the Sultan says, nonsense, Jafar. I'm an excellent judge of character. And he waddles off and he starts talking to Prince Ali. And, And some studio executive who is very short, much shorter than I am, and who only drank diet Pepsi, Coke, what were we allowed to serve at Disney? Uh, Pepsi. Um, he made them cut the line because, and I swear to God, it's because he doesn't know what the word duplicitous meant. And my feeling to your audience is always right because this is what the old Warner brothers movie um, cartoons did. I learned vocabulary. I learned vocabulary. I learned history. I learned about world war two. I learned about racism. I learned all sorts of stuff from cartoons and because you're watching them with your parents because they're funny. And then you ask questions. Well, and, yeah. Ugh, trust the children. Trust and I see it with my own kids because we used to watch every day we'd come home and we'd watch some TV that I taped kind of as a decompress before they went off and did homework or whatever. And so we watched quite a lot of gargoyles that way. Mm-hmm. I'm so pleased they enjoyed it because it was something I could also enjoy besides like my pretty little pony or, or Princess Guinevere and the Jewel Riders. Oh, anyway. <laughs> Lord, how I have suffered for my children. (laughs) Anyway, um, (laughs) the thing is, is now, of course, that's a cult favorite among kids of that generation. Mm -hmm. And so the kids were talking about it recently, and they're in their, you know, early to, oh, my gosh, Hannah's going to be 24, 25 soon. Anyhow, they were talking about it, and they were just like, oh, my gosh, we were watching it recently, and we realized how much Shakespeare they fed us in that. They said, especially Mm -hmm. the last season, they're on this river, and everything they come to is a different Shakespearean play or twist of it. Or, And they said, now we, you know, you come across the plays, you go, this is so familiar. Oh, that was Gargoyle season three, what, you know. Wow. It's the same thing. And so um that's awesome. Yeah. The kids understand it's good stuff. You know, good good stuff is good stuff. Good and it vocabulary. Gives them something, good vocabulary. Yeah, and it gives us something to relate to later. It's not like the yeah. ones that'll go, I just took, you know, I've had some arguments with people where they're like, here's the kid version of the GK Chesterton Father Brown stories. And I'm uh-huh. like, yeah. you know, those stories are pretty simple. Why not let them just read the real thing and you do something mm-hmm. else? And oh. I've had so many arguments over that. No, no, no. And I'm like, no, do something like Gargoyles. Take it and get, or Neil Gaiman. Yep. I think the the problem is, is, is the parents most of the time, because they just don't, they, you know, like uh, the, the feedback I hear from parents is make it harder for them. No, no, no. You have to make it more fun. Mm-hmm. And more fun means they're interested in learning. (sighs) Don't pile on memorization, Mm -mm. pile on fun. And, and on the fun story, you get, you get something out of it, and and you enjoy the 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 journey of discovery and comparison. Oh, it's 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 so great when you know you know a kid is really connecting, and then and the parent says, "But is he really learning anything? <laughs> reading these comic books with these these pictures in them? I want more." 
testing. No, not more testing. No, no, no. Story. We learn everything through story. Yeah. Everything of value is communicated narratively. Narratively. Uh, And that's why um, I'm not sure what to make out of the new mother, but I am sure that there's something to be made. (laughs) Well, I liked Heather's interpretation. And the fact that you guys were saying that, you know, it was obviously written for older kids and grownups so that I was like, oh, good. Because when I read, I didn't find whatever that was that you read. And so I was looking and all I could find was the date and she wrote it for her kids. And I was like, it is, you know, moral tales. And I went, oh, what an awful woman to write this for small <laughs> children. That's awful. Here's what I'm going to do, kids. Guess what? I wrote this just for you. Never um, sleep again, children. Well, and it seemed like that Victorian idea of, mm-hmm. you know, everything must teach you a definite lesson. And it's, no, it, you know. Not definite what's going on in here, that's for sure. Yeah. No, and I'll tell you, the more I read about her, the more I got the sense that she had a really wicked sense of humor. And that there's some, there has to be some winking going on in this one that's just, it's lost on me. But Absolutely. It, if you listen to something. how the girl talks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she says a lot of stuff. And every line, I'm like thinking, is she being honest here? Is she being serious? Is she, every, it seemed like. Everything she said was the opposite of the truth. And if you just use that as a code, right? Right. She, said, mm-hmm. she says the sky's blue, it's actually gray, right? Yeah. She says the, the her pants are blue, they're actually red. Everything is backwards. Everything's inverted. And if that was true, then I still don't understand what she's saying because <laughs> a lot of it is like, uh, you know, she says, uh, you're not naughty enough, good day. And I'm wait, if, if naughty is good and not uh, good is bad... <laughs> Then head explodes. <laughs> yeah, what's what's her motivation in corrupting the kids? It's in it, it's. She doesn't get I have soul. no idea. I mean, she's just evil. Well, I, I was I was thinking, you know, it was she is she is caught in some, you know, curse. But it, it, the fact that she's always at the same spot mm-hmm. on the side of the road. Yeah, she's uh, waiting is, for him. It, mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of. But and she's you know what else was the dog guy is early on. Um, yeah, here it is. I've got it right under my finger here. It says, on her feet uh, were coarse gray stockings and thick shabby boots, which she had evidently forgotten to lace up. She had something hidden away under her shawl, but the children did not know what it was. At first, they thought it was a baby. But when on seeing them come towards her, she carefully put it under her and sat upon it, which they <laughs> thought they must be mistaken. Uh, oh yeah, gosh. I hope so. <laughs> Although... Based on her other actions and reactions, I don't know. Exactly. I'm now starting to think it was a baby. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Evidently a dead one since it was crying. The fact that they see a girl and she's got a baby, that would mean that the baby was her baby in my eyes. Mm -hmm. Right? And if that's true, then this is, you know, there's some sort of moral lesson here. I I don't know what it is, but uh, why, why do those two dogs, are those two dancing dogs walking on their hind legs, are they the man and the woman that... We're missing from the box. It's like my mind is <laughs> trying to work in it. Uses this as a key. You know, I'm trying to use every key that's in the story to unlock every lock that's in the story, and nothing fits every lock. And oh. and I think this is this is a, a story that is really interesting because it offers no answers at all. Yeah, she yeah. didn't answer. A lot of questions, but she didn't answer all those kind of things that you're talking about. She just kind of threw a lot of stuff out there and went, eh, make of it what you will. 
yeah. discuss amongst yourselves. Perhaps yes. you lost yourself, they said gently. But the girl answered promptly, certainly not. <laughs> Why, you have just found me. Besides, she says, I live in the village. Uh, but she doesn't live in the village, right? No, she, she doesn't. She lives on the side of the road. So, and she lost herself? Certainly is the right answer. <laughs> okay, if she's <laughs> lost herself, what does that mean? Uh, she doesn't know who she is. I I I give up. Well, and what's, <laughs> after a certain point, I just like say, okay, throw it to the audience and. I think how hard it is for those kids to be naughty. Mm-hmm. It's really difficult for them. They have to go against everything that's in their nature, which is not actually like real children either. Of course, everything is idealized in here, but. Um, you know, I it was I just kept the oh no, we can't do that. You know, and it wasn't because oh. we'll get in trouble. They just knew it was wrong. I, I was totally that kid. Oh, yeah, me too. But still, oh, yeah. I knew how to be, I knew how to be naughty. I, I don't lie to I my would. mother well enough to, to talk my way out of getting caught stealing a pack of gum. My sister couldn't, you know. She'd try I, it and I, get caught. I think, I think being confronted with the, you have to be naughty at a specific level would <laughs> yeah. have confounded me. You know, yeah. it's like, well, what, what do you mean that wasn't naughty enough? Yeah. I mean, come on, that was really scary. I said yeah, no see, to my obeying mom. Obeying someone else is not being naughty either, right? That's true, too. That's she says, you point. have to be naughty in the right way. Well, <laughs> yeah. and here's the list of things. Ha- it, well, that's not being naughty. Being naughty is defying authority and doing your own stuff, right? Well, uh, they're, they're not doing that. They're listening. But to you her. can, yeah, right. you can fall under a bad influence and do what they tell you because you're, you know, because of the wrong motivation. Yeah, and that's yeah, I was, I was actually thinking that the the really nice kind of modern usage of of this is to, if you gave this to a bunch of high school students, would be to move them from a discussion about naughty, and move them into a discussion about truth in advertising, huh. and why why <laughs> yeah. is it that these children should never have trusted this girl? What are all of the telltale signs? Yeah, that go along in their conversations with her that should let them know buyer beware. You're not going to get what you want She's out of this. She's not wearing the right shoes. You can't trust her. Well, just right there. <laughs> I mean, seriously, thinking. where yeah. are the Manolos? Right. Critical thinking. Right. That's right. But, uh, you know. She might be sitting on a baby. Again, just, not a, a good, good sign. <laughs> not a good thing. Well, I don't think she should sit on her musical instrument either. I mean, <laughs> this, is, uh, this is. Um, Especially a drum. Yeah. Oh, getting those pair drums are very sturdy. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> I, I could tell from the PDF. Hold <laughs> it up just fine. Uh, it wasn't entirely clear to me, uh, except by the pictures, that the that the the turkey and blue eyes were actually female, but they are girls, right? Right. I think right. so. Yeah. I think yeah. so. They're not turkeys. <laughs> <laughs> but they one might of them have, is. One of them might have blue eyes. I'm not sure. One of, them, one of them is. The way they name people in this, I don't know. <laughs> I think this is just like one of those grim fairy tales that don't necessarily give you the warm fuzzies. They just uh, <laughs> it's definitely grim. Yeah, yeah. just grim. teach you a lesson, but don't don't necessarily have a happy ending. Is that is that where the word grim came from? That was their I think it was the guy's name. name. Yeah, but uh, you mean we, usage wise? Yeah, so we now say, that, oh, that's very grim. <laughs> is that because we've read a lot of no? Grim? Wouldn't no? that be funny though? Uh-uh. It would make oh, sense oh. to me. I don't know if that's true. I don't know what the etymology is. You have to look up the etymology of the word grim. I wish I was still teaching at the U of A. I was able to access the online OED. Well, I actually have one. Dictionary has it. 
I have an OED, but by the time I hauled out the right volume and my, you know, um, magnifying, magnifying glass, glass, yes, Give it we'd up. be done. No. But it oh. could be one of those things. Of course, they have two M's in their name, but it could be one of those things like people who are named Baker or Field or Miller. Uh-huh. That's true. Just a similar sound or a, an actual meaning that went to them. They were grim. Uh, <laughs> it says here that grim um, is perhaps imitating... Uh, imitative of the sound of thunder, grem, gremet, thunder. A weaker word now used uh, was a sense of dreary or gloomy. First recorded in the 12th century is the verb grimman. The Oxford English Dictionary also has the noun grima. Oh, like grima worm tongue, right? Goblin or specter. Perhaps also the proper name of a of a god. Hence, its appearance is an element in place names, a noun meaning a form of bogey or haunting spirit. First recorded in the 1620s, and of course, the Grim Reaper, 1847. Yes. Is that only? And oh. Harry Potter. I see a Grim. That's right. Mm-hmm. What's that? What's that? What's a Grim in Harry Potter? A uh, bad omen. Uh, yeah. The fortune telling teacher. Yeah. <laughs> he was so bad at it. But so good at it too. Um, was anybody watching Grimm on TV? Mm. No, mm-hmm. I saw like the pilot episode. It didn't really catch okay. me. Okay, it's gotten it was, better. Yeah, it has gotten better. It's they've suddenly said, you know what? If we had a, a couple of story arcs in here and a little <laughs> character development, that would be crazy good. You know and what turned it for me was Monroe. I love that actor. The wine-drinking, cello-playing, Blutbaden werewolf guy is yeah. my hero. Who who fixes clocks for a living. Who fixes clocks. He's yeah. so adorable. He's but in that actor, he's he's got these looks that you understand that like, every part he's ever been given is the insane escaped lunatic or, you know, the <laughs> serial killer because he just looks nuts. But yep. I and that's what attracted me to the show. Right. Because I'm like, it's that guy. I know. Because yeah, he's allowed to play somebody who's actually interesting. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, they have gotten a little better at the the show's gotten better, but I kind of found it interesting that they're combining they always start off with like some little line from a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. And there is a loose connection. And I some of these shows, the way some of the writers connect these things into modern life is very interesting. Yeah, and then also I was watching Once Upon a Time. Yes, but it conflicted with too many things that I was taping mm. on TV, and I didn't mm-hmm. have enough real time, so I'm ha- I, I'm several episodes behind. But and it was kind of faltering, I felt. But that was another interesting way to look at fairy tales in real life. I think they picked it up on Once Upon a Time, and and I I have I have to really ap- appreciate the fearlessness with which that Mm -hmm. writing crew has attacked these kind of sacred cows of, you know, Snow White is passive and Mm -hmm. is going to be in a glass casket for a really long time, or that the dwarves are... um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, okay, so Lee Ehrenberg was at UCLA and graduated, I think, the year before I got there. So everybody, when I got there, was talking about Lee Ehrenberg, who was one of the pirates in Pirates of the Caribbean and who is grumpy. Oh, and okay. From, everybody who <laughs> I knew who knew him said he was just the most marvelous guy. So I've been watching his kind of bizarre career arc, and I'm so happy to see him playing grumpy because he's, he's really marvelous. He is. And, and his 
his yeah. episodes have been lovely. I agree. And I, yeah, I'm, I might be four or five behind and I keep saying, I hope they're streaming it. Cause I've got to hook the computer up and start watching it again. Cause it's, it's much better than grim. Yeah. Um, it yeah, started off better. much stronger, much more complex. Are you yeah. guys watching that at all? Either of you? No, just no, the beginning. I'm... Just the it's, beginning. It's yeah. really, once you get to yeah. the episode about the huntsman, everything changes and right. you will not stop watching. Yeah, sounds sounds doable. It's, um, it's very. I just found yeah. uh, my new favorite expression. Uh, this is going to be awesome. It's to wend, as in W E N D, mm-hmm. the grim tooth. It's an early 13th century expression, which means to have recourse to harsh mather, uh, to have recourse to harsh measures. Ooh, to wend. The gr- oh wait, I'm writing that to down. To wend the grim tooth. I like that. Too. I, I'm sorry, boys. It's time to wend the grim tooth. I like it. <laughs> I can have recourse to harsh to measures. Does it have a yeah. wooden tail? Because I'm not going on this. There's no way. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.